So, Chris, I noticed that you talk about price more than I do in our Matrix chat. Yeah, I bet there are times of day where you don't even know what the price is, which is funny to me, right? Because not only do I have a widget on my watch that's constantly monitoring the price, but my desktops also have a price widget. Like right now, the price is (laughs) $23,965. That's one thing I've always done to tell you the truth, because I've been watching Bitcoin since I think when I first noticed Bitcoin, it may have been under a dollar. I don't I didn't do anything about it at that point in time. But I remember noticing it get up into the $10 range and then the $13 range. I started getting seriously interested. And ever since then, I've watched the price that has evolved over the years with all these different websites to do it. And for me, it's not to trade because I'm never selling Bitcoin. It, It is really just trying to optimize acquiring the cheapest sats possible. Yeah, that makes sense. We all have our coping mechanisms for the day when Bitcoin runs away from us. I actually thought that had happened last year when it was in the $60,000 range. Oh, this is it. That's my last full Bitcoin. I'm not going to get another one. But then Satoshi provides and the price just crashed all the way down again. I completely agree. Towards the end of last year, I thought, oh, I I blew it. I missed it. Okay, well, it's just going to be a really, really long grind out from here to try to stack sats. Here we go. I better like just figure out my DCA system. And then the price dropped when the price drops and then you're like oh wait yeah not even able to stack the bottom like i wanted well there is that too it's like could it go a little cheaper because i can't quite afford this either a little bit cheaper or just stay as low as possible for as long as possible please so that way i can stack as many sats as possible well i think we'll get into that later this is the bitcoin dad pod recorded on thursday july 28th 2022 i'm your bitcoin dad and i'm here remotely with me over here i'm hi it's chris hey chris Hey, welcome back, everybody. Our last two episodes have been Whoppers, and I think we are going to buck that trend with a short, tight episode. Frankly, not a lot has happened this week. So what we're going to do is dig into Arthur Hayes' new article, and it deals with the strong dollar and the implications for Europe and Japan. In the same vein, there is news that the Italian government has collapsed. This kind of ties into that European debt crisis theme. El Salvador has done something very surprising with their sovereign debt. And then we have a very silly tokenomic story about the stupidest DAO I've ever heard of, Spice DAO. Really, really stupid. Then in Bitcoin education, we have an article that I wrote for a presentation at a meetup here in Istanbul called Offline Seed Generation for Lazies. It's a very lazy article, but we can talk about offline seed generation and why it's a good idea. Yeah, some really good tips in there. You know, the weeks where we always say there's not a lot going on, we often find some nuggets to really dig into. So I say, let's do it. Let's get started. And then we will have some feedback and boost. Now, should we start with Italy or Excalibur? Let's do the Italy one, because you really dropped a tease there to just boldly come on here and say that Italy's government has collapsed. What? CNN hasn't told me this, Dad. This must not be. Italy's government collapses really, really frequently. Their parliamentary government system is actually very, I don't know, fragile. (laughs) And so you need to have a kind of ruling coalition for the thing to work. And this coalition can fall apart at any time, and then you have to have new elections. And so the previous Italian prime minister, I believe he was ousted on Sunday, was Mario Draghi. And some of our listeners might be familiar with that name because Mario Draghi was actually the previous head of the European Central Bank. And Draghi is the kind of figure that I think Bitcoiners will sort of hiss at. He's a former Goldman Sachs banker. 
made millions doing that, then ran the European Central Bank. He was the one who famously said, we'll do whatever it takes during the last European debt crisis. And then he effortlessly went into Italian politics. And so he's kind of known as a technocrat. And I think in many ways, he's representative of how this idea of sort of technocratic, logical, smart leadership has completely failed. And it's kind of degenerated into insiders making decisions that are very much in their own best interest and everyone resents them for it. The Italian government situation is pretty bad. They actually have, I think, two fascist parties in their government, the Brothers of Italy and the Five Star Movement. They sort of remind me of Mussolini when I read about them. Italy is very difficult to govern. And And it's not uncommon for their government to fall apart. But what's kind of interesting right now is that Italy is in the midst of a debt crisis because the yield on Italian government bonds is rising. The market is saying, we are very suspicious of your ability to repay your borrowing. And so there's a difference in yield between Italian bonds and German bonds right now. And that tells you that the market is afraid of these bonds. And so the European Central Bank realizes that if Italy has a debt crisis, it will likely crash out of the euro. And so they want to somehow raise interest rates in Europe, but also buy all of the Italian government debt to cap that yield and to basically keep the Italian government solvent. And so this is the European Central Bank slamming on the accelerator and jamming on the brake at the same time. Obviously, it's a schizophrenic policy, but the failure of the Italian government makes it difficult to coordinate between, say, the ECB, the European Commission, and Italy to make this deal work. So this is definitely, I think, at least a yellow flag, maybe a red flag about the coming European debt crisis. It's probably going to be messier if there aren't solid political entities to manage the crisis. That's a lot to process. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> Sorry. Was that too rambly? <laughs> no, no, no. It's just... I'm not really sure how it plays in and fits in overall to what's going on, but it seems like it's going to make a bigger economic situation worse over there. That's the best I can take from it. The question is, why do we bring it up? Why do we care about Italy in the context of Bitcoin? And the answer is inside Arthur Hayes' article, Excalibur, the sequel to his last article. And both of them have some very amusing anecdotes. But the core of the issue is that he has identified that as the dollar strengthens due to the Federal Reserve's policy of fighting inflation at the moment, this is wrecking havoc with over-indebted nations around the world. Not just Sri Lanka in the third world, which has recently collapsed due to tightening financial conditions, but also Europe and Japan. Japan has a huge amount of government debt relative to the size of their economy. And the EU is in a similar position. And actually, the European Central Bank currently owns something like 40% of the European nation's sovereign debt. So it's similar to the Federal Reserve in that we have governments producing debt and the biggest buyer is their own central bank. This is the Lynn Alden metaphor. It's a cook who mostly eats their own cooking. There's clearly a problem with that restaurant. Right. But the problem is that because Europe and Japan are unable to raise interest rates because they've already gotten to such a debt burden that if they were to do that, they would have internal political crises. This means that they cannot tighten as the Fed tightens interest rates. So they can't raise interest rates as the Fed raises interest rates. And this causes money to flow out of these economies and into the U.S., strengthening the dollar and basically creating an economic spiral that is leading to currency crises and eventual political crises 
in the European Union and Japan. So they suffer as long as the dollar remains strong. And so it seems like that's going to put political pressure on the Federal Reserve to take some kind of action. They must do something. I think so, because right now the U.S. seems to want Europe to support Ukraine in their struggle against Russian aggression. And this is very difficult for the EU, especially Germany, because Germany is completely dependent on Russia for their energy. And it looks like Russia has cut off the Nord Stream pipeline, which provides natural gas, which Germans will need to survive the winter. It looks like Russia is definitely going to constrain the energy supplies over the winter. And this could actually be a humanitarian crisis in Germany, because if they have a cold winter, I mean, people could freeze to death. That is a pretty shocking situation for a developed nation. Yeah. And the energy rationing that will likely have to take place is going to have massive economic slowdown. When you ration energy, you ration productivity. A strong dollar makes all of this worse because it makes energy more expensive for these countries to buy. It exacerbates every problem. And as we described in Italy, you know, that's a very dysfunctional country that is also undergoing a debt crisis. And as the dollar strengthens, all of these pressures increase. And so actually what the ECB really needs is for the Fed and the Treasury to work together and start buying European government debt, because this would simultaneously print dollars, so it would weaken the dollar, but it would also suck up some of this European government debt that the market doesn't want and essentially help keep Europe solvent and a single political entity that can continue to help the U.S. bleed Russia by supporting the Ukrainians in their conflict. This is almost an identical theory to one that you proposed on the show, what, two episodes ago, now that Arthur here is touching on? It seems like other people are starting to see what you're seeing. I don't know if I can take credit. I probably got the idea from Arthur, but it seems kind of obvious. This will lead to a weird policy situation in the United States where the Fed will try to be controlling inflation internal in the United States but then it'll be trying to create inflation externally by buying European government debt. So this is just, in my opinion, a very chaotic environment. And it suggests that we will probably see unexpected things that are hard to predict at the moment. Not a very Hmm. satisfying forecast. You can't really predict how Bitcoin price-wise is going to perform in that market. It could lead to more fluid money, and so perhaps price goes up. But depending on the policies in the States, it might not. So, (laughs) yeah, you really couldn't say. And we haven't really seen anything like this, have we? Well, I mean, there have been previous European debt crises. I think this one is worse because there's an energy crisis at the same time. There's war on their borders. There's a global food crisis in the making. So... This is definitely probably the worst European debt crisis that we've seen to date. And inflation is so high already, right? We're entering all of this with really high inflation and in some areas much higher than the CPI number would have you believe. And yeah, like you said, the war is an ongoing cost. It is just a money sink. Yeah, that's true. Actually, I was um, listening to some news from England, and it appears that England has spent their entire foreign aid budget on Ukraine, and we're only halfway through the year. So it's definitely a very costly burn to keep that conflict going and Mm -hmm. not be suing for some sort of peace. If the next batch of funding gets approved in the States, it'll bring the total to just cash in equivalents to $60 billion that we've sent from the U.S. alone. It's sort of interesting. I don't know if we want to get side tracked into talking about the Ukrainian conflict. Yeah. I just see a lot of issues potentially. Mm. 
with kind of blindly supporting Ukraine? Because on the one hand, hey, someone invades your country, do whatever it takes to protect it. You clearly have that right. There's nothing more American than fighting someone who wrongs you, right? I think that's kind of a national value. Fighting for property rights. Property rights, exactly. But the problem is, as I understand it, is that because Russia deploys a large amount of long-range artillery for Ukraine to fight back, they need long-range artillery of their own. And when you give it to them, they will immediately start striking targets inside Russia because you don't win a war by blowing up the army. You win a war by eliminating their supply chain and then they're unable to fight and then they either go home or you capture them or then you blow them up. You know, you don't like fight them when they're at full capacity. It's all about destroying the infrastructure that supports the army that you're fighting. And so that infrastructure is mainly in Russia. It seems to me that the logical outcome of supporting Ukraine on a path to any kind of victory means giving Ukraine weapons that will be used inside of Russia. And if there is a concern that that could provoke a escalation from Russia, then that's a problem. And I, I guess I just don't see yeah. anybody talking about that at the moment. I would propose to you that the retaliations we're seeing with the Nord Stream pipeline is exactly that. The supply started getting reduced after the West supplied more weapons. And when Russia announced that they were cutting it down to something like 20%. The next day or two after that, Germany announced that they were supplying Ukraine with more weapons. And it's just sort of been this tit for tat. Hard to imagine how this is going to end. At the same time, this happening in the context of a European debt crisis, it creates an energy crisis. There's an inflation crisis. Systems fail not when there's one big problem. It's when there are multiple big problems and it kind of overwhelms all the systems in place to respond. So we've been calling the end of the EU for years or at least I have, but this might be it. Well, they always do invent some sort of scheme. And so I'm sure the Federal Reserve will step in and start buying those bonds up and make everybody whole. And of course, they'll uh, print a bunch of dollars to do it. They'll increase the dollar supply, which people will snap up like crazy. And slowly but surely, we'll watch the cycle start all over again. And if we see something like, I don't know when or how, but if if we do see something like the war in Ukraine wind down, then you might see a lot of um, positive turnaround. But it seems like to me, the big question is, is how long are we in the phase we're in right now? And the longer we're in this phase, like Lynn Alden pointed out recently, the longer we're in these intense energy prices and this high inflation, the more damage, the more systemic damage we're doing, the more stress we're putting on these systems that you're talking about. And so for their very own survival, <laughs> you think they turn this ship around pretty soon. Yeah, but I mean, outrage is a powerful emotion. And I think everyone's outraged about what's happened in Ukraine. But I think what Lynn said was time under the curve. That might be our title for this episode. You're right. And that is exactly where we're living right now. Yeah, we are definitely under some kind of curve. And El Salvador is attempting to affect the spreads on their government debt, which have been basically priced for default with an announcement that they're going to try to buy some of their 2023 and 2025 sovereign bonds because these bonds are trading under par. Basically, the market is anticipating that there will be some kind of default from El Salvador. And I think that's pretty likely because El Salvador doesn't seem to be able to cut a deal with the IMF for additional financing, and they haven't issued a Bitcoin bond, so they don't have cash at the moment to pay off their previous bonds, but they apparently have some money so they could just buy them outright at a discount, which if they could do it, it seems like a great deal. You know, borrow $100 and then you threaten to not pay it back. The bond drops to 75 cents and then you buy it. You've just done a great trade right there. But I guess what's weird about it is why are they announcing it and not doing it? They're just going to drive up the cost. They'll be able to 
buy less debt if everyone knows they're about to do it. So is this a signaling game? Have you thought about that? That is very odd. That's You're right. That doesn't make any sense. And to signal the exact amount, $560 million will be used. So, okay. <laughs> like, let's go spend that $560 million then, boys. You're right. That's absolutely ridiculous. I don't understand where this money's coming from. I think El Salvador is one of the hardest places to get accurate news out of. If I had FU money right now, I think I'd go down there just try to get a feel for what's going on because you see so many different stories. I see some stories saying that they have the money, they're ready to go. I see another story saying that, you know, they're currently doing an oil subsidy to keep energy prices low for their citizens, and that's costing them millions of dollars. They don't have the money. And I don't know which to believe. We'll find out eventually. But Kelly himself put it all on Twitter, and, you know, he came right out there and said, this is what we're going to do. So now we have clear goalposts to measure him by. Yeah, we'll see. I just don't think there's enough information to know. It is interesting that the media, even the one that we link to here, which is just a pretty standard piece from Reuters, they really focus a lot on the Bitcoin element of El Salvador, which, I mean, yeah, that was something they spent money on, but only a small percentage of their overall budget went to Bitcoin purchases. I wonder about that. Do you feel like the context is, look at these crazy people, this guy doing this Bitcoin thing, no wonder he's defaulting and the implication is it's sort of because he got involved with Bitcoin or something? I think that's exactly the implication. And they always work it into every single story where they're talking about this. But I remember CNBC on June 25th reported that they used 0.5% of the national budget to buy Bitcoin. I mean, that's a very conservative DCA strategy. Normally, we would recommend at least 1%. (laughs) In total, again, this is from June of this year. In total, CNBC says that they have purchased around $374 million worth of Bitcoin. So that's less than the amount of money they're talking about, this 560 they're talking about using to buy their debt. You know, we were talking about this in our Matrix chat today. I think I've been more skeptical about the El Salvador story, not necessarily seeing it as an unparalleled good. And I think that I'm kind of softening on that because one great thing about Bitcoin is that it has incredible optionality. You can choose to use it. You can choose not to. Once you're using it, you can kind of do whatever you want with it. You can hold it yourself. You can sell it in a liquid international market. Yeah, there's price volatility, but literally everything else about Bitcoin is predictable, which is cool. So I've read criticism of El Salvador that said, hey, Salvador is doing this Bitcoin thing, but they're cutting their education budget or look at this video of a hospital that's in disrepair or something like that. And I think in the context of it's less than 1% of their budget, that just seems probably it's not like you're cutting the education budget and buying Bitcoin. If you're going to try new policies in government and you're spending less than 1% of the budget on a new policy, you're probably not taking too much risk. Especially when you consider the upside. If that were a household budget, it would be like, yeah, 0.5%, go for it. You know, invest in Dogecoin if it's 0.5%, right? Like, who cares? Even given the volatility, I think you could make the argument that in the last couple of years, it would have been responsible to, you know, allocate 0.5% of a household budget if you're doing investing. Um, And I think you could make that same argument at a country level. Honestly, I I probably would have been like, with what they're attempting, 10% almost even seems reasonable, right? It's they're attempting to rebase their economy to some degree and also attract a ton of tourism. I mean, this sounds like a pretty smart move. We'll see. Frankly, I I don't think they need to buy that much Bitcoin. I just think that if they could have invested in a good infrastructure that allows uh, El Salvadorians to use Bitcoin to send remittances home and cut out Western Union and those money transmitters, then I think that would have been a huge win. It seems like their Chivo wallet infrastructure is working. And so now the problem is just training people to use it, educating people that they can save money by using Bitcoin for international remittances instead 
instead of using a money transmitter. And I think that education is really difficult, changing people's habits and behaviors. And it seems like there hasn't been a huge amount of education about what Bitcoin is and whether or not it's a legitimate thing. And I think that's actually part of the motivation for the Adopting Bitcoin conference, which I talked to Kamal about, which is happening this year in El Salvador. So I see a lot of positives there in the midst of all of this unknown. Yeah, definitely from the people side. I think there's still a lot to understand and learn about what's going on on a policy side. But when you have an economy of what CNBC says is 29 billion and they've spent 374 million on Bitcoin, it all seems pretty reasonable to me, especially for the upside. Even in a bear market, they're still seeing they're still seeing tourists show up. They want to spend their Bitcoin, right? That's something that for a country that had a reputation for crime and violence, that's something that I think is going to pay them dividends for a really long time. Yeah, hopefully. And that ends our very short economic section, which brings us to tokenomics. Are you familiar with SpiceDAO? Please tell me you're familiar with SpiceDAO. I do recall, although I start to blur all the DAOs together because we've been talking so much about the Solend DAO recently. Right. And then there was Constitution DAO. Oh, yeah, well. Yeah, well, Spice Dow is even dumber than Constitution Dow, if that's possible. I don't, okay. <laughs> this was a Dow that raised a bunch of money to buy a book, a physical book by Jordorowski, I think is the name. It's this artist, this comic book artist and, and graphic artist. And he produced an art book, I think for Stephen Lynch's Dune movie. But a lot of the ideas were not implemented because I think that movie was sort of a failure. And so the idea was that they were going to buy this book and then they were going to like make the perfect Dune movie or Dune TV show or something. And they raised a lot of money. I'm not sure exactly how much, but you know, certainly over a million dollars. But here's the thing. They actually did go and buy the book but they don't own the movie rights. So like the whole DAO proposal was actually completely ludicrous because they could never make a movie if they don't own the rights. They just bought a book. And nobody thought to bring that up? Like, hey, yeah, great, good, got the book. What about, you know, the production rights? Nobody asked that question. I don't know. I mean, it's just some bull market DeFi DAO nonsense, in my opinion. And now everyone who bought that DAO token is really getting shafted because the core team is basically turning the DAO into a company. They're buying out all of the DAO token holders, and then they're going to sell the book and take the money. And so if you bought that DAO, you're just totally out of luck because at the end of the day, there is this centralized team. Yeah. And the DAO can kind of vote on things, but you have to have someone actually implement it. And it looks like these people physically control the book and they're going to do whatever they want with it. So that is a lot of stupid. And you know what I think it is, is I think it comes from the mother of stupid, Ethereum. I truly believe one of the reasons people ape so hard into these really obviously dumb ideas is because in the Ethereum and Ethereum-related spaces and Ethereum-related chains and all of that area, there is this constant community drive to justify a use case. And so I bet this was pitched as a brilliant use case for a DAO. We'll buy the rights to this book. We'll buy this book. We'll produce this movie or television show for a streaming service. Everybody's going to get rich. It's going to be a DAO produced show. How great is this? Like, what a fantastic use case for Ethereum or whatever the blockchain was. And what a fantastic use case for a DAO. Like, I could just see everybody getting so excited, especially in a bull market, with the concept of adding utility. Like, hey, we found a use case. Proof of concept that turns out to be just a straight up scam. Love it. <laughs> that is a lot of stupid. Now, there's also a post in the thread at the end that is a little dark. And there's an allegation that these guys were also behind another scam DAO called Milady. They're basically predators. Like they're just really bad people is the allegation. Oh. 
I can't really evaluate it, but it's like, yeah, you see that and you're like, yeah, of course, of course. Right. These guys. There's your Dow use case. <laughs> oh, ouch. This November 15th to 17th is the Adopting Bitcoin Conference in El Salvador. I interviewed Kamal from Galoy, who's putting on this conference, and it sounds pretty cool. It's going to have two tracks, an economics track and a development track, as well as an unconference where Bitcoiners can get together and create their own groups and presentations, work on actual problems in the moment. Seems really cool and not too big. I think they're going to be 700 people max. And if you are interested in going, you can use the code BitcoinDad and get a 21% discount. So check it out, adoptingbitcoin.org. I don't know how you do it, but I noticed that you've been spending a little time learning Hugo and you have created a post title is offline seed gen for lazies. And I'm reading through it right now. And I really like the information you have in here. Give me the background on this. So I went to the Istanbul Bitcoin meetup last night. I've been talking with them about giving a presentation on seed generation. And I think that the theme of this show is let's not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. There is a problem in Bitcoin because Bitcoin wallets are an incredibly secure way to store wealth, but that security is predicated on a well-generated private key inside the wallet. And the way that we store private keys and, and actually create them in Bitcoin is to create a seed. And this seed is a number that's encoded as 24 words. This number has to be very random. And it turns out that computers are bad at doing random numbers. Humans are bad at doing random numbers. It's just hard to actually create very random numbers. Right now, there aren't a lot of stories about people's private keys getting guessed because private keys are these huge numbers kind of hiding out in the sea of numbers that sort of flows out to infinity. They're very hard to guess. But at a certain price of Bitcoin, it's going to be economical to start guessing these numbers and figuring out how they were generated in a very serious way. And so one way to potentially protect yourself from that future is not to rely on the auto-generated random number in your wallet, but to generate your own provably random seed in an offline environment. One of the things that I really appreciate about cold car is they give you that option to input your own chaos into the mix to make sure that it's generating something that is truly random. And I don't know if all hardware wallets do that. They probably do to some degree, but I really like the way the cold card handles it because they just walk you all through it right on screen. The cold card is kind of an ideal situation because you can input 100 rolls of a six-sided dice into the cold card. Right. And this will generate a pretty random private key. And you can actually verify that this is the private key that the cold card is generating is the same private key that the dice would generate. Because if you keep track of the dice rolls and then you run a program, a Python script that is available on the CoinKite website, you can actually generate the seed on an offline computer and on the cold card. And then you can know that, okay, it's the same seed. So the cold card is actually taking the entropy and generating a random seed in a predictable way as opposed to, say, being preloaded with a seed and then CoinKite one day sweeps everybody's funds and now CoinKite is the richest entity in the world. <laughs> and again, it's not like you have to do that stuff. If that sounds really technical to you, you don't need to. But what I think is nice is to have a tool that does let you have that level of verifiability when you want it, but doesn't require that you use it. And they do it in a really intuitive way. And so that's, I think, what's nice about some of the tooling we're seeing now and this guide that you have as well. It doesn't make it overwhelming to actually accomplish this stuff. And it's a pretty lazy guide, as in I kind of fudge some steps because it was uh, kind of a guide for a presentation I gave. And the simple 
approach is this. The first thing you do is you download Tails OS onto a thumb drive. You boot your computer into Tails, which is a one-use operating system. It doesn't leave a data footprint on the computer. You can do something sensitive, like create a private key in Tails. And as long as you've turned off the internet, there's no chance of that leaking into the wider world. It'll just disappear when you turn off the computer. So you boot up Tails, you connect to the internet, you download this tool called the Seed Tool, which is actually created by Bitcoin Q&A and friend of the show, Super Fat Arrow, who's also involved with the Border Wallets project. And hangs out in our Matrix chat room. Yeah, Super Fat Arrow is super fat cool, in my opinion. And you can use this Seed Tool to input entropy to generate a seed. And you can get this entropy from rolling a dice, from flipping a coin, even from drawing random cards from a deck of cards. Now, you have to know how to shuffle cards and draw them in a random way with replacing cards. So that approach is slightly tricky. But with flipping a coin and rolling dice, it's very simple. You just have to be willing to flip that coin like 200 times or roll those dice 100 times. And then you input this entropy into the seed tool and it'll actually create the BIP39 compliant 24 word seed. And then you can take this seed and put it into the Electrum wallet that comes prepackaged with Tails, and it will identify it as a valid seed. So you can kind of check it. And now you write this down on paper, and you've got a very secure paper seed. You can then put this into a wallet at a later point, or put it into a signing device like a cold card, a seed signer. This is sort of an advanced practice, but it's actually relatively simple once you try it. And this is a way to create very secure seeds and then store them in a secure way. So this is just Bitcoin security best practice 101, in my opinion. Yeah, I would love to hear from the audience, maybe via a boost. How do you store your seed? We're not going to dox you, so don't <laughs> worry. Nobody knows who you are. But like, what do you do for that kind of situation? Um, How do you store your what seed? Is, like, what is I, the combination of your safe? <laughs> yeah, tell us exactly where it's at. No, I'm just thinking like in the back of my mind is I'd like to make it accessible to my significant other. I want to actually even one day make it accessible to my children, possibly. And I'm just trying to think of these things through and how you store something like that that you want maybe for 40 years to let. I don't know. Hopefully I'll be around that long. We'll see. Yeah, it's really tricky because with Bitcoin, if you give someone the ability to recover it, you give them the ability to take it. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Especially with kids, I feel. Yeah, but there are also scenarios like in your passing where you would want them to have that capability. I think that this is actually one of the big value adds of some of these companies that help you with custody because they can do um, estate planning where they'll True. give the third seed to someone after a, a you know death certificate is presented or whatever. I mean, there's trust there. You know, if the boosts start to drop off, what we could do is launch dad's cheap death seed service or something like that, you know, or uh, dad's dad's cheap multi something like that some service you know and then, then that could be the monetization strategy for the show you know actually there are other podcasters who've had that idea already there was a service called oh, final message it. which basically would send a seed if you didn't like reply to an email that like prevented them from emailing all of your beneficiaries every two weeks or something so you got to push the button every oh my goodness <laughs> don't take an internet break that's too much pressure <laughs> whoops everyone got my seed <laughs> Hope you got signal that day. Hope your email doesn't go down, etc. Jeez. So anyway, this is kind of a light article, sort of a big topic. There's also an article that I link to, and I'll link to in the show notes as well, that gets into the math and the logic of 
random number generation. And it also provides kind of a more in-depth and well-documented process to generate a seed using a very complicated form. It might be a little overwhelming, but there's definitely some value in this article. And this is by Lunaticoin, who seems really serious about seed generation. And hopefully not Luna. Definitely not. This person probably would do something terrible to the Luna source code (laughs) if he ever had an opportunity. Which brings us to feedback. Remember, you can always get in touch with the show via email, bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com, or you can tweet at the show, bitcoindadpod on Twitter. Now, we are about to implement a new boost policy, which is to read a boost on the show, it's just going to have to be a thousand sats or higher. We get a lot of thousand sat boosts, and that's awesome. We also get some smaller boosts, and we really appreciate it. It's super cool. Always feel free to send in a comment with a low boost, and we'll definitely read it. But the boost section has been getting a little long. I think we need that thousand sat limit just to keep it tight. And also, if it's something that you think is important to be read out, a thousand sats is, I think, 50 cents. So it's uh, probably not too much. Okay, so our first boost from four hours ago was 10 sats from This is the Future. It was listening (laughs) to Wildly Speculative and says interesting views on China. Well, thanks for listening. Thank you. I don't recall what our views were, but appreciates that uh, 10 sat boost there. And then five hours ago, we got a thousand sats from Bitcoin Child. Restable sats. It sounds a lot like keeping a USD cash balance on, in strike, which can be spent on Lightning Network without ever buying BTC, i.e. Lightning spend and receive as a service, but keeping one clear of any BTC tax implications. Bitcoin Child was listening to my interview with Kamal from Galoy, and stable sats is a US dollar balance that they can create in the Galoy wallet using a Bitcoin options contract. So they didn't want to mess around with stable coins. They want to do everything on Bitcoin. And they do this thing that was described by Arthur Hayes in the sort of BitMEX options market, where you basically take Bitcoin and you sell price appreciation as an option. So if I take $100 of Bitcoin, I sell an option on the price appreciation. And in exchange, I get $100. And so if that Bitcoin goes to $1, I still have $100. But if it goes to $101, I have $100. And the buyer of that option has that at $1. And this is a way to sort of create dollar balances that can be useful to people in the Galois wallet, which is a banking software stack for Bitcoin. But they didn't want to get involved with any stablecoin custodians. And so this is their solution. We haven't seen it work in the wild, but it's an interesting idea. I enjoyed that chat a lot, Mo. I don't really know how it's different than Strike. I don't know what Strike is doing. I don't think it's anything like what Strike is doing, other than in concept, you essentially keep dollars and then you, you can always send that exact dollar amount in Bitcoin at the time over Lightning. So in Strike, you can, you know, you can transfer like an ACH transfer, USD, into your Strike account. Mm-hmm. And then when you go to transfer it somewhere on the back end, Strike is doing an instant conversion on both. They might actually be holding dollars or something yeah in a bank account as opposed to a dollar stable coin right or a synthetic dollar options contract i believe that is the case yeah this stuff gets pretty complicated pretty fast our next boost is from this is the future who's listening to that same interview and replied keep it rocking then we got 500 sats from r Shackleford, who said came for the bitcoin and stayed for the economics lesson then i was sucked into the self-hosted show thanks dad and chris <laughs> bitcoin dad halo effect then we received 200 sats from scott wolf who was listening to that interview fantastic interview great to learn more about kamal and his work with galoy this episode was full of such rich information and intelligence which i've come to expect 
contact from your podcast. Great work as always, fellas. Wow. Thanks, Scott. Oh, my goodness. You got a triple boost from Marcel. I can see that up here. That is Marcel coming in with a triple boost. I think Marcel and Potar, they are like boosting whales, right? They're they're a big deal. This is a quad boost. Wow. So do you think Marcel was hitting the like the character limit and just kept on going? I don't know, but I, I love it. This is like some tier one level support for the episode right here. This is fantastic, Marcel. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Marcel. Let, let's read through it. So the first boost, 3,000 sats for a wildly speculative. I have a question about Bitcoin addresses. I noticed that Sparrow will generate a new address for every transaction. How are these calculated? What kind of privacy does that give? Should I really use a new address every time or should I always use the same address with the same exchange so I only let them know about one of them? Great question. You should always use a different address because even though you share multiple addresses with the exchange, there's no way for them to link them together unless you give give the exchange your master public key, which you should never do. So basically, there's no advantage to ever using a single address. And if you use a single address, then outside observers will be able to see that address and the balance and know that you have a certain balance on that address. Whereas if you have multiple addresses, the exchange will know how much they've sent you, but outside observers will not be able to connect those multiple addresses. In terms of how addresses are calculated, I actually watched a presentation on this in Turkish last night. And I have to say that it's actually quite complicated and not because the presentation was in Turkish. I think that we should actually talk with a specialist about address generation because I could describe it, but I'll definitely get one thing wrong. What I will say is that a single Bitcoin seed can create, I believe, about four and a half billion unique addresses. And these addresses cannot be linked together unless you leak your master public key, which basically gives the formula to create half of these addresses. The other half of these addresses, which I think are called hardened addresses, they're created directly from the master private key and something interesting happens there. I hope that's correct. So basically always use a new address and the actual process for creating addresses is quite complicated. And I'll try to find an article to link to that might uh, explain more. And then he comes in with another 3000 boost. I was alarmed to learn that one company owns one fifth the hash rate. I know that decentralized nodes are important, but aren't there drawbacks to centralized mining? I I guess if they did funny business, nodes would throw out their blocks and that would give them the opportunity to mine on hardware. I can't think of any reason why that is bad, but it leaves me uneasy. I'd love your opinion and some more details on that. Honestly, corporate mining farms make me a little uneasy too, because I think it's very easy to regulate them and say, listen, you know, the government needs to approve all of the transactions before you mine them or something like that. You know, that's a real risk. At the same time, they're deploying corporate level capital on chain security. And so so this makes Bitcoin really, really secure. So it's kind of a mixed bag. At the end of the day, a single mining pool with 20% of the hash rate is actually not that bad given Bitcoin's history. Throughout Bitcoin's early history, mining was highly centralized and there were malicious pools like the ant pool run by Bitmain that controlled large amounts of hash rate, you know, maybe up to 40%, maybe almost 50%. And they even DDoSed the network at certain points. So basically when you start looking at mining and this hash rate stuff, we're looking at how the sausage is made and it can seem a little frightening, but it's worked so far. And frankly, I wouldn't be too concerned about it at this juncture. Hash rate is actually decentralizing according to my understanding. And if mining pools mess around, they incinerate a lot of money to mess around. The beautiful thing about Bitcoin is that everyone is rewarded for playing by the rules. And when people start breaking the rules, like when Bitmain did, when they were DDoSing the Bitcoin, 
Bitcoin network, they lost a huge amount of money and Ant Pool became pretty unimportant and became a less important part of the Bitcoin ecosystem as a result. So everyone gets what they pay for in this system, I believe. And I think keep in mind during a bear market, the miners are going to struggle. You may see some consolidation during this time. And so these numbers may be in flux as certain mining operations wind down and others get larger. But then, of course, that also will thin back out as uh, the bull market returns one day. One day. Now, Marcel actually sent the same boost in twice. Ah, so Marcel, reach out via email, Twitter, or on the matrix, and I will refund you that second boost. But the last boost was, I like your unlocking the phone privacy argument. I would love the chance to talk to the moronic politicians trying to ban encryption so I can ask them if they really want me seeing their banking login going by in plain text. I hate how privacy is conflated with illicit activity. 100% Marcel. I think, first of all, a lot of people just don't understand privacy. They don't understand how digital systems work. And so, they imagine privacy is like a bandit wearing a mask and sneaking around, you know, with a sack full of stolen goods. I think a lot of people's conceptions about these problems are very childish and not realistic. There are assaults on privacy everywhere right now. What's cool is that encryption and PGP is protected like speech in the United States. Unfortunately, in Europe and in other countries, not so much. At the same time, all the good tools are free and open source. So you can kind of do it on your own if you have to. That's a great point. And I think the other thing to just keep in mind is that some of us might be just a little bit more aware of the privacy implications of certain types of data collection than maybe the average bear out there, just because data collection kind of requires you to understand all of the implications of technology, be able to sleuth through all that to really appreciate the risk it presents. Yeah, good point. And then we received a boost from Washington Herrera, who said, hi, hi back. Hello. Sir Lurkselot boosted him with elite set of hats, 1337. And he said, you must have missed my boost from June 13th. That's okay. The Bitcoin bill or action shills episode. I had a question about the number and size and effect of whales and what the assumptions about Satoshi Nakamoto might turn out to be wrong. Ooh, what if Satoshi's wallet suddenly shows activity? Hmm. You did get the later boost, though. Uh, no hard feelings. I know you had issues with the boost, but I'm curious, at least to your thoughts on the question. So what if Satoshi's wallet suddenly became active or one of these big whales like a sailor type whale. I think that would be great. I think that you will see a lot of institutional money that pretends to be long-term thinking and have diamond hands, but actually is very short-term biased because those money managers have quarterly and yearly performance targets. I think that they will dump. There'll be a panic. The price will crater and Chris and I will happily buy that dip. Yeah, I'll buy a Satoshi sat. It honestly changes nothing about the fundamentals of Bitcoin. It doesn't even mean that Satoshi's come back. Satoshi could have written his seed in a deck of cards and left it in a hotel lobby. Who knows? It could just be out there. It turns out Craig Wright really is Satoshi. <laughs> if Craig Wright is Satoshi, I will eat my hat and then burn my private keys. <laughs> I hear you. All right. The next one, another elite set of sats. Question, what happens as people die without leaving their keys to anyone along with a constant stream of accidentally losing keys and otherwise stranded Bitcoin? Are there models that estimate the loss of Bitcoin over time? I'm thinking also in relation to Monero's long tail emissions. And lurks a lot. The answer to the model's question is at least yes. I think that was actually part of the conversation in the Bitcoin dev list about tail emission. And the assumption is that the Monero tail emission solves this problem of keys being lost over time. 
And so it might even still be a deflationary system if people are losing keys at a higher rate than this small tail emission. In Bitcoin, I don't think we're really worrying about that because the assumption is that when you lose a private key, you're basically burning those coins. So the purchasing power, the liquidity of all of the coins that can still move, like they kind of inherit the purchasing power of the burned coins. Yeah, I think Sailor's famous for saying that one of the most generous things you could do is go to the grave with your Bitcoin because when you take Bitcoin off the market, it makes everybody else's Bitcoin more valuable. So when somebody loses Bitcoin in a landfill, everybody else's Bitcoin is worth just a little bit more. So I don't know if it's actually a problem at all. (laughs) I think the system's working just fine. I hate to be one that loses that Bitcoin. All right. And then the last boost from Lurks a Lot comes in with another elite set of sets. Sometimes we might despair because we temporarily run out of sats. Had problems buying Bitcoin recently. Strike turned me down with no explanation. But I've been using MoonPay, but I had to call to my bank to get the transaction approved because I'm a U.S. debit card holder and they are based out of Ireland, apparently. I guess I got to figure out BISC or lurks a lot, RoboSats. I try to say it at least once an episode, RoboSats. If you like lightning like I do, RoboSats is such a great way to go because they let you pay with a lot of conventional payment systems that are not a big deal. PayPal, Cash App, stuff like that. And then you get your Bitcoin as lightning. We got a short row of ducks, two to two sats from Bisquits and Gravy. Cash in mail via Bisque is a good way to trade Bitcoin privately. Oh, there's a solution. If you have never sent cash through the USPS service, it is quite the adrenaline rush. Yep. I might never see that money again. I hope it gets to where I sent it. Well, good luck with that, biscuits and gravy. And I will be trying that out myself soon because I think it would be helpful for everyone to walk through a biscuit trade. It's funny, sending it by mail seems so risky to me. <laughs> but I could actually see the advantage to it. And it's something people have done for many, many, many years. So I'm sure it'll work out. Now, we received a mega boost, 25,000 sats from at Pitar for Wildly Speculative. I mentioned Patar is like a podcasting 2.0 whale booster. I mean, he is everywhere. He's a boosting legend. Patar is someone who, if you let those boosts get in your head, you'll be just making your show for Patar. And I, I know we have to avoid that. And the comment, interesting opinions, a great mix of topics, entertaining host chemistry, and excellent production quality. Top notch show. I mean, if he's going to be so positive, does he even need such a big boost? I, I don't know. <laughs> well, Crypto Kyle makes up for it with 500 ads. Uh, he says, Clam AV is you. But it's fairly heavy and a clumsy scanner, and it is mostly used when there is regulation compliance. Hmm. A much better approach is a zero trust setup combined with the least privilege setup. If Clam AV is needed, the game is already lost. Perhaps. I feel like we're being rough on Clam AV. It's a good little antivirus. It's just, it is old school. Well, thanks for the perspective, Crypto Kyle. We also received 20 sats from Newsflash Gordon. Great show. I like that username, Newsflash Gordon. Thank you, everyone, for sending those boosts in. If you're interested, the best and easiest way is to go grab a podcasting 2.0 compatible app at newpodcastapps.com. Fountain's great, Podverse is multi-platform and an F-Droid. And if you're an iOS user who loves CarPlay, Castomatic has CarPlay support right now, leading the pack with that. New podcast apps for those. Or if you don't want to switch podcast apps, you can grab Breeze, B-R-E-E-Z dot technology. And then you can send your boost in that way. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pond, recorded on Thursday, July 28th, 2022. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I I'm here as always with me, Chris. Thanks for joining us, everybody. And see you next time.